everyone. Welcome to Works in Theory Podcast, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Nate, and I'm here with my co-host, Alicia. Greetings. And Tom. Hello. And today we're going to keep talking about uh, our first book, Peter Kropotkin's Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. Uh, the last episode, we went over the first two chapters uh, both are called Mutual Aid Among the Animals, and uh, now we're going to be transitioning to talking about humans specifically. Uh, uh, the next two chapters that we'll talk about, chapters three and four, uh, are called um, Mutual Aid Among the Savages and Mutual Aid Among the Barbarians. So you can kind of get a flavor of what we're going to be talking about Yeah, as we go into this. Uh, this book came out in, what, 1902, I think? Um that so, sounds right. And it was written sometime in the decade before that. Yeah. So basically you're going to get a big heaping helping of uh, like 19th century Eurocentrism uh, and just sort of uh, casual racism. Uh, yeah. To put it bluntly. Yeah. I found these chapters pretty distracting <laughs> to read because of the terminology that Kropotkin uses. Uh, I did find it very interesting because they seem to be sort of aimed at people. Like, I don't know, maybe he's just trying to meet people where they were, but uh, I kind of don't get that impression so much, but um, he did seem to be saying like, you know, these people aren't as bad as you paint them as that's not really a great great perspective, (laughs) but it's better, I guess, than just saying like, despite these things, like, right. He didn't really paint it as, despite them being worse than Europeans or whatever. And then then it's primarily being like tribes in Africa and things like that, I think. Yeah. Like he has a sense of like trying almost to combat racism in his own day uh, where, you know, where he's like, Hey, like these guys, they might be cannibals, but they're not just like monsters. Like you think they are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, he has that sort of baked in um, idea of like progression of civilization uh, and so he takes for granted that these are in some way like lesser people or at some sort of more primitive stage of civilization. You see that in the ways that he writes about some of the like what he's framing as less desirable attributes like being, you know, earlier so-called more primitive societies like the 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 nations that he describes as like living in a hole and that kind of thing and how like he paints that and the languages he using the the language he's using to describe those sorts of civilizations in the with the the traits that european society as you know, quote unquote, more civilized would see as definitely lesser. Like he's really drawing heavily on the like racist and stereotyped undertones you get in in a European context. But then when he goes on to talk about the examples of mutual aid and mutual support, the the flavor of the writing is just like completely different, it feels like. Maybe that's where you're going about um, 
like trying to combat the the racism of his day or the Eurocentrism of his day by not, but still not alienate. Trying, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. If, am I apologizing for this guy's like takes? But like, <laughs> you know, not not alienating the people he's writing for because he is writing for a European audience. Yeah, totally. And and I mean, I don't even think we ha- we can even just say he probably thinks this way too. You know, totally, it's, it's just how a totally. lot of people thought back then. Yeah, and he- and it's built into the structure of this of these couple of chapters. So like we've talked about animals and what, what he wants to do now is he wants to like, he's like, all right, so animals are lesser than humans. So at, like humans come after animals, but then like these are like the more animal type humans and we move in a progression towards like the more human type humans, which he definitely sees as European civilized people. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and that again, that's going to like be the structure of the rest of the book. Cause you can see he goes from animals to like sort of hunter gatherer tribes uh, to medieval society, and then he just enters history and kind of goes chronologically. So he sees this as as building a progression. <clears throat> one one thing that I was I I thought was really interesting when I um started looking over the notes again was, and I don't know how much of what we said last episode was really pro. I mean, like it was definitely influenced by what we read. <clears throat> but he says, um, you know that why he he goes into why haven't we seen mutual aid promoted as a factor of evolution more. Uh, this is something we talked about a bunch in the last episode, and I realize it's probably because he talked about it himself. He wrote, there were always writers who took a pessimistic view of mankind. They knew it more or less superficially through their own limited experience. They knew of history of what the analysts, always watchful of wars, cruelty and oppression told of it, and little more besides. And they concluded that mankind is nothing but a loose aggregation of beings, always ready to fight with each other and only prevented from doing so by the intervention of some authority. And so that's essentially, I think, what we came to conclude last episode. Um, But it was nice to see he kind of pointed it out. Like, why is it that we aren't taught about this in school? Why isn't it something that people discuss more widely? Because the people, you know, victory goes to, you know, uh, what history is written by the victors or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. And, and like we touched on last episode, the people, people absorb that they read the history that only talks about the war and the warlike nature of humanity. And then those people go and they study animals. And with that in their heads, what do they see in the animal kingdom? They just see war everywhere. And so just like that, uh, they apply it to, uh, sort of like, you know, indigenous people or uh, the people of other nations that they've come across. And they have this idea of, uh, like we talked about at the beginning, this like progression of humanity uh, from sort of the origins, which are some sort of hunter-gatherer tribe. And uh, that view that that you point out that uh, humans are, you know, basically right at each other's throat and we need society uh, in order to like keep us all from killing each other. That's like one of the major schools of thought uh, from uh, Hobbes that he's going to be arguing against in these next two chapters. Uh, so just like he argued against Darwin in the first two chapters, or not Darwin, but the uh, the you know interpretation of Darwin yeah. that was popular at his time. And... Yeah, exactly. Uh, in, in these two chapters, he's going to be kind of uh, arguing against Hobbes, uh, who, like I said before, uh, you know, says that nature's red in tooth and nail, and that everything sucks and we're all killing each other until we form the social contract and decide to enter into society. 
Uh, and then the other view he's arguing against, which is kind of the reverse, is Rousseau, who says it's has that sort of a uh, there's a term for it, but it's like a, a a racist way of looking at indigenous people as somehow like more pure than other humans. Uh, and so he has this idea that like when we were in a, what he calls the state of nature, we were actually like purpose, like perfectly peaceful, per- perfectly getting along. And then society actually comes in uh, as a way like for us to dominate each other. And so Kropotkin's going to go a third way. He's going to sort of uh, say neither of these guys are right. And the major reason he's going to say neither of them are right is that they have uh, a backward idea of how human society came about. They are thinking of uh, like early humans as living in nuclear families and then later on like confederating into society. But in fact, uh, like humans have been living in tribes since before we were human beings. And this is uh, this is part of what Kropotkin is going to talk about in this in this early chapter, chapter three. He says, the chief error of Hobbes and the 18th century philosophers as well was to imagine that mankind began its life in the shape of small straggling families, something like the limited and temporary families of the bigger carnivores, uh, when in reality, uh, it is now positively known that it was not the case. And he he brings up uh, sort of the cave dwellings, uh, you know, in, in Europe, the cave dwellings where the cave paintings are found uh, from Neolithic people. And he, he compares them to like, the uh swallow the nests. nesting colonies of swallows mm-hmm. yeah he's like these don't look like the the isolated sort of dens of carnivores this is this is uh, a species that's already living in a, in a society yeah so then having having established that we have been that we live in a society and in fact that we have lived in a society uh since we've been human beings and probably even before he talks a little bit about like the sort of like morality or like the social cohesion of those early societies, which he calls the common law. Yeah. He, he talks about uh, societal norms as a means of order. And uh, it's a very good, a very good um, little anecdotal thing, but uh, he writes that <clears throat> Van, Van wrote in 1840, one murder had only been committed since the last century in a population of 60,000 people, and that among 1,800 Alouettes, not one single common law offense had been known for 40 years. This will not seem strange if we remark that scolding, scorning, and the use of rough words are absolutely unknown in Alouette life. Even their children never fight and never abuse each other in words. All they may say is, your mother does not know sewing or your father is blind of one eye. (laughs) Which I thought was very interesting because I don't know that my mom... Uh, well, she's passed, but I don't know that she knew sewing. Uh, I, I think she knew probably a little bit, but like I don't remember her doing a lot of it. Um, and I don't know that I would have taken that as an insult today. But as far as I understand, your family origins are not <laughs> of the Alouette, or Alouette, which is I I did I did the the, the <laughs> Wikipedia page on that one, and it's kind of like the Inuit equivalent for what is Russia. Oh, good to know. Um, but I thought that this was a very interesting kind of um, anecdote about how people, uh, like, you know, it, it's a common, I think, question amongst, you know, or towards anarchists, I guess, as to like, how would you keep people in line? What are you just going to shame them all into doing the right thing? And it's kind of like, yes, like, it's kind of like, 
people generally want to not be dirtbags and they generally want to be seen as, you know, upstanding citizens. Um, is, you know, kind of my opinion, obviously, but also the opinion of Kropotkin. And also it looks like somewhat of history that, uh, with the right kind of societal structure that to influence people, I guess, into doing, I don't know about what you want, but like into being good, into being upstanding citizens or whatever, um, that it, it can be done, I guess is my point. It's not like, uh, unheard of. Yeah, definitely. And and in this section, he's sort of like contrasting it with, you know, European written law, which he's talking about people aren't great at observing. They break it all the time. Uh, but yeah, this like sort of, you know, unwritten rules of conduct are just like reinforced almost automatically. Maybe because it's not as alienated as the law that is practiced in Europe then or like in North America now where the law seems like I mean, we have like we have lawyers and lawyers deal with the law and matters of the law and justice instead of or lawyers and cops and whatever. Right. Whereas if you don't have those structures, it's more personal and the way that you interact with people every day. Yeah, for sure. And that, um, you know, it kind of also gives a structure of. Well, if it's not breaking the law, or if I don't get caught, then it doesn't matter. And we see this in particular with people like our president. Uh, and so, um, Your president. you know, it's just, it's very interesting because when president. you start to, uh, my, my president, <laughs> I should say some people's president, <laughs> not my president. Uh, no, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, but it's, it's an interesting kind of like, you know, thought experiment about, uh, you know, if you have just kind of societal norms, um, and we, and, you know, you see that, that kind of thing in like, uh, what is that, that the thing about shopping carts and people putting shopping carts away, uh, at, at the store or whatever, um, that most people do it because it's kind of like expected and it's the right thing. And you know that you'd want the shopping cart to not be there when you drive through. Uh, I don't know if everyone puts so much thought into it when they actually do it, <laughs> but um, it seems to be the case that that's how it shakes out. And there's no rule. Yeah. There's no law. It just says you're held responsible. The store says we're not responsible for this. So figure it out. I mean, or sometimes they even are responsible, right? They'll have a person whose job it is to collect them, but people do it anyway. Oh, yeah. But I mean, the they often have signs that say, we're not responsible for damage from the oh, cards. Yeah, sure. but, uh, but yeah, you're right. They do they do take their own, the matter in their own hands of moving them around or whatever. But yeah, people do it anyway. I do it a lot of times. I'm, you know, all my life I've moved multiple carts. I'll like just, if I'm moving my own and I see another one, just grab it. Like, it's not hard. Just just move it along yeah, totally. to the nearest corral or whatever. <laughs> And this is what I think is interesting is that, you know, people will come up with these sort of like uh, challenges like, oh, you can't make people do that if you're not, if there's not like a rule and a cop to make them do it. But everybody will admit, well, like, no, I would do it. Right. But like, it's just other people that wouldn't do it. And I think I think David Graeber's example for this is is something like like lining up at the store. Right. There's like no no rule that you can't button line at the cash register. But like. Like I cringe just thinking about doing that. Are you kidding me? Yeah, the social <laughs> like, shame works. 
And of course, like, you know, maybe you might say we're talking about small things here, like moving shopping carts or or queuing up. But uh, but that's like all that's left to the realm of like public shaming. Right. Everything else has been corralled into the realm of lawyers and shit. Yeah, everything else is cancel culture. You can't uh you can't involve yourself in anything else that's societal. <laughs> this is why I'm very pro cancel culture. I think actually we should all can like all law should just be cancel culture. That's that's fair. <laughs> you just you open up the law book and it's just a single page that says cancel culture. <laughs> yeah. You're canceled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I guess we can talk about like the kind of things that are being enforced by this common law in the tribal society aren't like, like you know, the like tax laws that Trump has has come afoul of, or like I don't know, uh, this sort of more esoteric laws that you need lawyers to understand. It's basically be nice to people. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, the laws tend to be be nice to people and like some form of uh, what David Graeber calls primitive communism. Uh, what Bookchin calls usufruct. Yeah, I'm not sure how many... Uh, basically, everything is owned in common. Yeah, I'm not sure how many anecdotes we'd want to get into on this, but, for example, um, back with the Alut in Russia, there were the disaccumulation rituals that we learned about, where if somebody gets too much stuff or too much power or whatever it is, they throw a party and share with everyone until they're back feeling like they're uh, not even, I can even say if, if I feel like the idea of feeling like they're on the same level again is, is imposing like the way our culture views power, I guess. Mm. But anyway, um, you're shamed for having yeah, like much... doesn't even let that level exist in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Like what is it? I think he writes, um, when a man has grown rich, he convokes the folk of his clan to a great festival. And after much eating distributes among them, all of his fortune. It's just like, imagine if Bezos did that. <laughs> imagine if he threw a giant, yeah, totally. a giant party in Seattle, fed everybody, and then said, you all own Amazon. Yeah, good idea. We should yeah. call him up. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe he done. just hasn't thought of it. I wonder if it's, it's just It's not a even a new idea. Like... This is like basic humanity shit. Come on, dude. Yeah, and it's also uh, like one of the most famous examples of this is actually like right, th- right up here uh, where Tom and I are in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the potlatch ceremony. Um, which is what is now called like a potluck, I guess, or it's based on that in some way. But it's like this thing where, yeah, you if you if you get have a bunch of fish or a bunch of like whatever resource, uh, it sort of like increases your clout the more of it you can give away. And so you like hold a big party and you're like, look how awesome I am. I'm giving you all all this stuff. And it's like, that's how you gain sort of notoriety. Yeah, I, I love that idea. And the fact that um, potlatch was illegal for a very long time kind of shows how much of a threat it was, or still is even, to the ways that the dominant culture wants to structure human relationships. Yeah, there can be no alternative. There's another quote that um, really struck me, too, that ties maybe i'd like to believe kind of a similar example back to the text as well um there he had some examples about just the care and compassion that i'm not sure which 
which tribe or area of the world even it was, but there, the, the examples are like fairly, there's a lot of overlap between just like people treated each other well, because they relied on each other for survival. And it says, but if the same Europeans that are observing this culture and thinking it's so weird, if they were to tell a savage that the people in their culture, you know, fond of their own children and so impressionable that they cry when they see a misfortune simulated on the stage are living in Europe within a stone's throw from dens in which children die from sheer want of food. The savage, as quoted from the book, would not understand them. (laughs) Because it is just so bizarre, the the, the stuff that is normal within our culture of how we just let people starve and die and it's normal and it's their fault. Like this individualism, this trajectory towards like ever more individual units of humanity that kind of, you can see tracing through this book, almost the way that they describe the progression to the family unit. And now it's, we're even like further subdivided from the family unit in the ways that, we're expected to just literally fend for ourselves a lot of the time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you bring up, you know, it ties it back to what Kropotkin is, uh, is arguing against is this idea that, 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 you know, uh, I think Margaret Thatcher said something like, there's no such thing as society. There's just people and there's just individuals in the family. And it's this idea that like at most, yeah, you're responsible for your nuclear family. Uh, and there's this idea that you know i think people probably today even hold that like that was original and that like uh cooperation in a society was was later but in fact that's not the case at all and it's if anything it's a progression from living in more interdependent societies to the nuclear family to like you said alicia like i don't i don't even talk to my nuclear family anymore mm-hmm. yeah I, I rarely do i need to anyway uh <laughs> 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 don't want to get into that um, but, uh, <laughs> there's, there's actually this other really, really great quote, uh, from the book that I've used in direct and directly against people asserting that, uh, well, you know, you know, older civilization would have acted this way because of, uh, survival of the fittest, uh, where he says that, um, Within the tribe, everything is shared in common. Every morsel of food is divided among all present. And the Hoden, I think it's Hoden Tot, is alone in the woods. He does not begin eating before he has loudly shouted thrice. And I've seen people say, like, you know, if you're the first one to kill, you eat and everyone else suffers. And I'm like, there's, like, evidence that that's not always the case. <laughs> Au like, it can be true, but, like, it doesn't have to be. And it's a weird way to think of the world as this dog-eat-dog and, you know, rat race of a world where if I, you know, put in a bunch of work to kill something that is probably going to feed a lot of people that I'm just going to ignore them. Like, why would I? Also, if you're putting in all this work to kill a thing, that's going to feed a bunch of people often. That's not something you're doing alone anyway, like a human alone. I mean, we've got like guns now but like you know even like those arrows things right no no i guess like you can you can you can physically like be the one to shoot the arrow or shoot the gun but even the idea of like all of the support that you need to even get to that place like somebody needs to cook your food and make sure you're clothed appropriately and make sure that you have the skills to like camouflage or whatever just like 
get to the point of making that shot in the first place. Like you're not doing any of that alone. And I think that's something that in previous iterations of human society, we've understood at a much visceral level because we've had to, but now we're just so alienated. Like, you know, like even we don't even have to go to the grocery store. Like before it's like, Oh, how does food get to the grocery store? Now it's like, Oh, the food just comes yep, to my doorstep. Yep, totally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So these people are imagining like this hunter gatherer is like, yeah, killing some giant animal by itself and then like putting it in his SUV and driving it home and like, you know, eating it with his nuclear family at the dinner table. But like, yeah, and that kind of, you know, that's, it's, it's silly, but that like shows like you're not even really conceiving of what human society was correctly. Um, and like to, to your point, Alicia, about not being even able to do the hunting by yourself. Uh, Kropotkin actually says at one point, uh, he's talking about the law of mutual aid, and he says, it would be quite contrary to all we know of nature if men were an exception to so general a rule. If a creature so defenseless as man was at his begin was at his beginnings, should have found his protection and his way to progress, not in mutual support like other animals, but in a reckless competition for personal advantages with no regard to the interests of the species. And so this is like, you know, something we've heard before, probably since we were kids. But yeah, like humans don't have teeth. Humans don't have claws. Uh, I have teeth. We've... <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I should have really done my research before talking about this, but... Uh... <laughs> no, yeah, we don't have a lot of like uh, inbuilt defense mechanisms besides swinging our arms, I guess. We got to pick up a rock. You got to pick like up a ants. sword. Not that we have to get back into animals, but you know <laughs> they have these it, little itty bitty uh defense mechanisms that are futile without the whole colony yeah yeah exactly that the ultimate comrade the ant <laughs> they will yeah as a group they're <laughs> terrifying and as a single they're squashable <laughs> so what is <laughs> what is the difference between um, savage and barbarian. Does he talk about this? So I don't know that he talks about this, um, but I happened to read a book recently that used both of these terms and explained what they meant. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, James C. Scott's Against the Grain, which is like a history of the first civilizations, the first states. Um, and basically, like savage and barbarian are slurs, like they're and they're invented by uh, civilized people or people living in states to basically, you know, differentiate people who don't live in states, but uh, sort of order them in the way we talked about earlier, uh, where like a savage is a hunter-gatherer. It's somebody who has no hope of ever living in a state society in the eyes of the early state people, whereas a barbarian maybe lives in a village, maybe like practices some horticulture does some uh, animal husbandry, etc. And so like, they have the possibility of being assimilated into the empire sort of idea. And so that's the distinction. They're seen as like, again, like progressions of history with, with savages being an earlier stage and barbarians being the stage right before you get to what, you know, what were considered real people, which were people living in states. Kropotkin talks about this. He, he talks about living uh, together in the uh, barbarians living together in a village. He says there's a new, a new organization, the village community, uh, which kept them together for the next 15 centuries or more. The conception of a common territory appropriated or protected by common efforts was elaborated. 
and it took the place of the vanishing concepts of common descent. And so you can see this is sort of like a switch from like a more biologically rooted uh, tribal society to like sort of uh, a more socially rooted uh, society based on common use of the land. But it does go on to have a quote about private property also not being recognized within these early village communities. Yeah, yeah. So that's important, right? Because he's showing that uh, that even once we've like sort of progressed past like the quote unquote savage stage of civilization, uh, we've still got these uh, practices of mutual aid. Uh, so he says, as to private property and land, the village community did not and could not recognize anything of the kind. And as a rule, it does not recognize it now. The land was the common property of the tribe or of the whole stem, and the village community itself owned its part of the tribal territory so long only as the tribe did not claim a redistribution of the village allotments. So again, it wasn't uh, people like farming their own individual plots of land. It's a, a society working on the land together in some way. And it may there may also be a distinction between nomadic and um, what's stationary peoples as well because they are farming i'm not sure if that is described or not yeah yeah so i think like if you're nomadic you're more likely to be a savage and if you're if you're not you're more likely to be a barbarian by this by this designation yeah the closer you are right, to allowing like, a hierarchy to control your life basically the closer you are to civilization yeah exactly the closer you are to living in a state you know in a village yeah it's only like a couple steps away from a state just parse out that common property, make it private, you know, put some fences up, get a king. But that and another thing that we just completely take for granted nowadays is, um, so the private property thing, as well as it says selling and buying cannot take place within the community. And the rule is so severe that when a richer family hires a laborer, the laborer must be taken from another clan or from among, it says among the Russians, I'm not entirely sure which person they're talking about <laughs> here, but like you have to hire a Russian yeah. or someone who's not related to you. Yeah. And, and this is a, this is a really fascinating concept. I first learned when I read Graeber's mm-hmm. debt, uh, which is, you know, we like learn about capitalism and we learn it through this like sort of progressive model where we learn, like we used to barter things. We used to trade, you know, I have three chickens, you have an ox or something and we trade. Um, and then that eventually we decided, Hey, wouldn't it be easier if we had some third thing we all wanted and that became money and, and then capitalism was born. Uh, but, uh, Graeber points out that, uh, anthropologically speaking, uh, like no such bartering society has ever existed that we have proof of. Um, because in fact, like, trading like keeping track of like do we make an equal trade do you owe me do i owe you like do you have an advantage over me like that's not something you do with like your friends and family that's something maybe you do with like outsiders who you don't see very often but within the tribe like it's all usufruct yeah yeah the graver quote or the graver concept um resonates here for sure the idea that we started with credit and favors and goods being trade traded among people who lived in the same 
neighborhoods or villages or whatever it is. And you just do that because you all need to survive and you all need the means of, of existence of, and you all need the means of survival. But if you're trading, that's where, um, you know, pieces of silver or very specific, like two blankets or whatever it is, is, has a very, um, has a fixed value. It's not something you do with family, as you said. Yeah. Like, so I don't know, even an example in my own life, uh, like me and a couple of my friends, like sort of co-grew a pot plant raisin life. And one of my friends just harvested it. And like, you know, we didn't need to weigh it. We didn't need to like see how much there was before he like dries it and everything, but any parses out because like, he's not going to take advantage of us. We're not going to take advantage of him. Like, there's just no question about that. We like, we work together to grow it. We're going to divide it evenly or as evenly as we care to divide it. And uh, we don't need a cop standing there to make sure that we're being fair about it. Yeah. Because that's just not how people treat their friends. And, and you, you know, even if somebody, you know, gets more, gets less or whatever, if they feel wronged, you can just bring it up and be like, I feel wronged. <laughs> like it's not, it's yeah, not, exactly. it, there's no recourse <laughs> there either. Um, but yeah, most of the time it's honest mistakes. Like I don't, you know, what is it? The, well, that's kind of a mean quote, but the one about don't attribute to malice, what can be attributed to stupidity, <laughs> but it's not necessarily stupidity. Yeah. It's just like usually thoughtlessness or, you know, an honest mistake. Yeah. So even once we've like transitioned to living sedentary lifestyle, you know, we're farming, we're raising animals. Uh, we've got uh, an idea of territory. We're still not at the point where we're, where we have a market where we're keeping track, uh, at least within the village community, uh, of who owes who what, or whether somebody's taking advantage. We're still dealing on that common system. Um, and here, like similar to how we talked about the common law in the previous chapter, uh, he talks about the barbarian codes is what he calls them, but it's like the same idea of like sort of a, uh, an unwritten set of rules, uh, not enforced by, by a hierarchical dump system of domination or something. I, I thought this part about, um, war was actually very interesting because one of the things I like about Kropotkin is it feels to me that he doesn't shy away from addressing things that are like, uh, what most people would say about anarchism being, you know, utopian, it's like, well, well, you just expect there'd be no wars any longer. No one would ever fight. And it's like, no, that's not, you know, that's not what history tells us. Um, and, and so, for instance, he says that wars were certainly unavoidable. Migration means war. But Sir Henry Maine has already fully proved in his remarkable study of the tribal origin of international law that, quote, Man has never been so ferocious or so stupid as to submit to such an evil as war without some kind of effort to prevent it, end quote. And he has shown how exceedingly great is, quote, the number of ancient institutions which bear the marks of a design to stand in the way of war or to provide an alternative to it. In reality, man is so far from the warlike being he is supposed to be that when the barbarians had once settled, they so rapidly lost the very habits of warfare that very soon they were compelled to keep special dukes followed by special scholarly of or bands of warriors uh, in order to protect them from possible intruders. So this idea that, you know, m people are always itching to go to war, I guess, is kind of like what Kropotkin is talking about here is that it's not necessarily that they're just, you know, 
in a basic state of wanting war and it's only through some other force that tells us to not do it that we don't do it it's more that um sometimes wars will happen because of conflicts when you're you know migrating or when you're trying to expand that's gonna probably cause some some strife between the people you, you're running into uh but you're not you know looking for that state all the time for that uh that kind of way of life i guess i don't know if that if that makes sense i felt a little like it didn't make sense no no, no i i totally follow and it's similar to what he talked about last time with uh where like a lot of evolution takes place not because of competition but because in like species are trying to avoid competing it's like we have all of these institutions including he'll eventually go on to say like these institutions of law which we developed like specifically so that we wouldn't have to kill each other well that does transition kind of to the end of this chapter where they're talking about the origin of lords and i i think tom may have already touched on this but um the idea that there are lords who are um in charge of the the land or whatever but they still need to answer to the the peasants it says even when the peasants became serfs under the lord he was bound to appear before the folk moat when they summoned him and so that is that's still part of that barbarian code that's present here um and we see that evolve in the next couple of chapters about medieval society um, but we will get into more talk of uh, the institutions that were developed to avoid war uh, in next episode uh, on chapters five and six about the medieval city. Do you all have anything, any last words you want to say on chapters three and four? It's it's interesting stuff, but it's unfortunate how racist it is. Yeah. It's just really, it is very really unfortunate. You can't, you can't really. Yeah. This, the subsequent chapters are way less racist. We promise. Uh, thank you so much for listening to uh, Works in Theory Pod, the podcast that reads theory so you don't have to. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Works Theory Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Works in Theory Podcast. Uh, I'm Nate. Uh, you've been listening to Alicia and Tom also. Uh, our episode is edited by Forrest Frieder, and the theme song is by Wolg. Thank you so much. See you next time. Communism works in theory.